Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm Bryn. And I'm Maeve. And this week on the show, it's the return of Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show, now coming to you as a bi-continental production. We hit the highlights of sports this summer, including the Serena Slam and the Women's World Cup. And our feature this week, the pay gap in men's versus women's sports and whether women's sports have been set up to fail. Then it's microsports. <laughs> All right. So we're back and we're now recording from Malawi on my side and Washington, D.C. on yours. And we took a bit of a hiatus to accommodate this move, <laughs> among other things. <laughs> so, Maeve, what did we miss? Yeah, it's been a busy summer for women's sports. I guess that we should start out with the Serena Slam. So Serena, <laughs> Serena Williams, a uh, tennis phenom that she is, is on course to be the first woman to win all four Grand Slam events in one calendar year. And this is since Steffi Graf did it in 1988. So people are calling this the Serena Slam. Um, nice. But there are a couple different Serena Slams going on right now. Actually, she's already had one, depending on how you want to define it. Um, <laughs> she won at Wimbledon, and that was deemed a Serena Slam because she had won four Grand Slam events in a row. But she just hadn't done it in the same calendar year. So that's what she's attempting to do now. And it sounds she... like they need to standardize these measures. <laughs> I know. I was very confused when Serena Slam popped back up on Twitter again. I was like, I thought she already had one. Um, <laughs> but anyway, if she wins the U.S. Open next month, it will be her 22nd Grand Slam singles title, which will tie her with Steffi Graf. And it will also put her just two wins behind the all-time leader, Margaret Court, which I also just have to say is such an appropriate name for tennis. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, but um, Bryn, what is going on with uh, Northwestern's attempt at its football players unionizing? We talked a little bit about it last episode, but there's been an update, I understand. Yeah, so last episode, we were under the impression that the Northwestern students who were pushing to be qualified as employees were making progress and things were looking good for them. Mm -hmm. But on August 17th, the National Labor Relations Board said that it didn't have the jurisdiction to rule over state-run colleges and universities, and that while Northwestern is not state-run, if they asserted jurisdiction over a single team, it would promote some instability in labor relations across the entire NCIA league. So basically the court or the labor relations board ruled that they couldn't make any ruling. And this doesn't preclude reconsideration of the issue in the future. So I'm sure we'll see more of this. But what it says for Northwestern currently is that student athletes are primarily students and are not employees. And they can't argue for pay as employees. Well, I guess we'll have to keep an eye out on if this really deflates the movement or if they continue to find other ways to challenge the central premise. I'm sure we haven't seen the end of this. <laughs> so the Women's World Cup was played earlier this summer in Canada, as you'll, as our listeners will recall from our excellent reporting from our correspondent on the ground, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> but... In a really awesome turn of events, the uh, USA team marched toward glory and they won the final 5-2 to two against Japan. What were the highlights for you, Bryn, of that game? 
Oh, it was crazy. I mean, there were just so many goals and so many of them came early in the game. It was so fun to watch. And I was like so nervous leading up to the game because it was a rematch of the previous World Cup. So I was so nervous. And then for them to put in a couple of early goals, I was like, okay, we can all breathe now. Yeah, it was Um, nuts. I don't think I've ever seen a performance like that. They scored four goals in the first 16 minutes. Like, I'd never seen that before. It was unbelievable. And in the final, no less. It was nuts. I know. I was watching at a bar in New York City, and everyone just seemed totally bewildered. And, like, not to mention that Carly Lloyd, our new national hero, she scored – she had a hat trick in the World Cup final. A hat trick is three goals in one game. And Can one we of her goals, write in her for president? Yeah, right. <laughs> one of her goals was a beauty where she took a shot from uh, midfield and it went over the goalie's head into the net. It was it amazing. Was, it was insane. It um, was so cheeky. It was great. I know. And she she was just on fire. Like she was untouchable. What else? Uh, I also want to shout out the defensive line because they held it down the entire tournament. Um, they allowed- they were so solid and never get enough credit. So. I know. Defense More never gets enough for the credit. defense. Yes, defense yeah. all the way. Can can the t- listeners tell that we both play defense? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they allowed five goals through the entire tournament and only three through the semifinals. So um, Wikipedia was really funny. People changed the Department of Defense Wikipedia page to be the the USA Women's National Team defensive line. So big shout out to Klagenberg, Johnston, Sauerbrunn, and Krieger. Love them. Yeah. And I guess the last thing is that, for me at least, was that, you know, it was nice to have the rematch with Japan, but... The heartbreak for England of not getting to that final, Ugh. I really felt for them because they It had... was awful. Yeah. And they... I listened to an interview with the girl who scored the own goal. Yeah. And it was just the most heartbreaking interview. She sobbed all the way through it and just kept saying, like, I would do anything to Ugh. take that back. It was so awful. So... But people really rallied around her. I think that, like, it was a really nice moment in terms of people supporting the team no matter what. And England fans showed up for her, which is really nice to see. Yeah, and it was also just especially heartbreaking because that own goal happened with, what, like 10 seconds left? Like, there was not yeah, enough time. Yeah, there was no time on the back. clock. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, sad for England, sad for Japan, glorious for the United States. <laughs> USA. 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 (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be discussing the pay gap in men's and women's sports. Welcome back. For our feature this week, we are going to discuss the pay gap between men's and women's sports. It is a big pay gap. It is pretty much present in every major sport, in America at least, Um, and also, as we'll discuss, somewhat internationally as well. Um, So there are lots of questions behind this issue. 
whether women's sports are just inherently less interesting, inherently less athletic, and thus they don't uh, garner the same types of audiences and therefore profitability, or are there structures and biases in place that are keeping women from uh, achieving the same types of accolades and success as their male counterparts. So, Bryn, uh, we were just talking about the Women's World Cup, which turns out to be a pretty good example of the pay gap, yes? Yeah, I think it's the most recent and probably one of the most compelling examples we can look at because as we saw, the U.S. Women national, women's national team won the most recent World Cup, and for winning the entire tournament, they got paid $2 million. As a whole like team. Two, as a whole team, in, in its entirety, $2 million. If we well, look at the last Men's World Cup, the U.S. Men's National Team came in 11th place, got kicked out in the group stage, and still got paid $9 million. Oh. So <laughs> we're looking at a $7 million pay gap for not at all the same level of achievement. It's kind of unbelievable. But if you look at the German men's team who won the Men's World Cup that year, they got paid $35 million. $35 million. $35 million. So if you look at the actual equitable achievement, like there's a $33 million pay gap for the World Cup. That is like the most stark example I can possibly think of. I also, I mean, the top reward for the men's world cup almost doesn't bother me as much as the gap between just the u.s payout because the women's team has been so consistently better at the international level they've now won three world cups and the men's team has won none this women's world cup was actually the most successful in terms of television ratings it was the most successful soccer broadcast Ever in the United States, it shattered television records, men's or that's, women's. It had almost. That's 20... really good to hear. Maybe I was just watching in the wrong bars. <laughs> yeah, twenty-three million people tuned into the final game, and so that's about comparable to a World Series game seven. So I think, like you know, throughout the year and throughout the season, there's more attention paid to the men's game. And we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later as well. But in terms of just like, let's look at the numbers, the women crushed this summer. Then they should be reaping those profits. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so, I mean, considering that soccer is probably the most popular women's sport in the U.S., what do you think is fueling this pay gap or what do you think is behind it? Yeah, so a couple things. I mean, first, just to lay out some of the trend when we leave the international stage where women's soccer is really successful and just look at our national league, the NWSL. So that league pays its female players six between $6,000 and $30,000 a year, while over in the MLS, the men's league, players earn a minimum salary of $50,000. Additionally, yeah. Additionally, the national team, the U S women's national team subsidizes the salaries of those players on their club team. So like Abby Wambach and Hope Solo and Rapino and all of them, their club salary is subsidized by the national team or else they just like, wouldn't be able to get paid basically. 
Interesting. Um, so is that to keep them playing year round and keep them involved in the national leagues? Yeah, exactly. And I'd imagine also to like build fandom because those are your stars. And so you want other people during throughout the re- the regular season to be coming and seeing them. Sure. Um, but something that's really heartbreaking is there was a player for the Boston Breakers. Her name's Jasmine Reeves. And last year she was the rookie of the year. And you would think that, like, okay, that means she has, you know, a bright future ahead of her in soccer. She decided to retire from professional soccer because she was only earning $11,000 a year. And she was just like, Ugh. it's just not doable. I can't do it. And, and and they demand the same amount of commitment. And I'm sure it takes a – it's a full-time job worth of training. So that – that's just unsustainable. And one other sort of point of comparison that will just really rankle you is Sydney LaRue, who was a starter for the women's national team during this World Cup. Um, she's actually married to Don Dwyer, who's a, a professional men's player, though he is not on the national team. And they basically made the same salary this year. And his salary was just from his MLS team, and hers had to combine her national league play, her international play. So And she does tons of endorsement deals too, so I'm sure that's added in there. Yeah, and so even with all of that combined, she is just like barely on par with what her husband's getting paid in the MLS. <sighs> well, okay. so what do we do about this? <laughs> it certainly seems that FIFA doesn't care, which is probably the most frustrating thing because FIFA operating as a nonprofit organization has $1.2 billion in its <laughs> reserves. So yeah. if they wanted to even out the World Cup payouts or if they wanted to help support women's soccer and like national leagues and the players, they have more than enough money to do something about it. And yet they're Definitely. consistently just almost aggressively opposing that. Yeah, they're um, just like blatantly sexist about it. Yeah. <laughs> So if you look at the total payout for all of the World Cup, in the last Men's World Cup, there was $358 million paid out to all the teams, regardless of, you know, encompassing all of the different placements. And then for the Women's World Cup, $15 million was paid out to the different teams. So we're looking at $343 million difference. Yeah. And when FIFA Secretary General was asked about this disparity, his response was, that's not even a question I'll answer because it's nonsense. We're still another 23 World Cups away before potentially women should receive the same amount of as men. And didn't Sepp Blatter, who uh, is now sort of the scorned president of FIFA, but he's still the president. He's still hanging in. <laughs> he made a comment when asked like how to make women's soccer more popular. I believe he said something along the lines of make the shorts tighter. Right. Yeah, that was one of his like most famous awful sound bites. So, I mean, people have talked about the things that FIFA could actually do. And... You know, that includes just if they increase their payouts, the national teams could, you know, improve training, facilities, salaries, make this actually livable for their players. Um, And then they could do all kinds of advertising and youth development to raise the profile of the women's game. FIFA could require national programs to meet certain standards that 
could allow players to keep playing, such as offering living wages, health care, <laughs> proper training facilities, equipment, yeah. travel, all these things that are just woefully under-resourced. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense given that there's so much money in the sport and the men's game doesn't need any more, frankly. <laughs> I was trying to think of like some reasons why it's been difficult to keep a women's league afloat consistently. And something that occurred to me is just even thinking about the teams that are available in DC. There's DC United on the men's side, and they Mm -hmm. are very easy to get to a game. It's right on the green line for the Metro. So it's public transportation accessible. I looked up how to get to a Washington Spirit game, who is the club team on the women's side in DC. And they play way out in Maryland And it would either take you an hour drive or two hours by public transportation, which includes two different metro lines, two different buses, and a mile walk at the end if you're trying to get from D.C. to the game. That's crazy. Just in terms of of local accessibility, that to me just seems like here's a clear example where there's been a lot more invested in the men's side, not to mention, as we discussed last episode, the amount of public funds that are going into building the new DC United Stadium and the sacrifices that the city is making for that. And yet the women's side is playing at basically like a training facility out in Maryland. Yeah. And it's, I mean, selling tickets to their games and getting people in the stands is so important to keeping this league afloat. And yet there's all of these institutionalized barriers that are just preventing anyone from building a following for these teams. And just as a counterexample, um, in Portland, Portland is a great little soccer city. And there, the Portland men's and women's teams um, are much more linked up. They share, I think, some sort of revenue model. They definitely share like publicity and, and fan outreach and things like that. And the women's team is doing great. They're pretty popular. There's a good fan base for them. Hope Solo plays for them. I think Rapino does too, or another yeah. one of the World Cup players does. And that model is also what's at play um, in England. So all of the EPL teams, the English Premier League teams, have a women's club attached to them. I think it just proves the point that like there are other models and other ways to think about this, where if you put in resources and if you made a concerted effort to put men's and women's teams on the same level that you would get back fandom and money and attention. Yeah. And and if you don't look at the women's game as like a side activity, if you think (laughs) of it more as like a cohesive strategy, that's going to end up with profits for the entire organization in the end, then I think that's a much better way to look at it and would give a lot more incentive for people to promote the women's game as well as the men's. Absolutely. And the other thing that I was thinking about was how popular youth sports are in the U.S. As we've discussed before, you and I were both really involved in playing sports as kids. It's approximated that about 13 million girls in the U.S. play youth soccer. And ESPN did a survey of youth sports. And among teen girls, they found that about a quarter play basketball, about a quarter play volleyball, 
And then 17% played baseball or softball, soccer, track, other numbers played swimming, tennis, cross country, like lacrosse, everything, you name it. There are girls out there playing sports from a young age. And so if you have all this interest and you have all these players and structures, like youth sports get competitive, especially these days. And so like at what point in, in the journey does it all fall apart like why do we have so many girls interested in sports at a young age and then when you get to adult leagues it's such a challenge well and it's interesting because title nine has done a lot for college athletics in terms of giving women opportunities to play Mm -hmm. so when you look at male versus female participation in college athletics that gap is narrowing, but what really isn't is the profitability of male versus female sports, mm-hmm. particularly at the college level where none of the athletes are paid because they're student athletes, as we've discussed. <laughs> right. We have our own <laughs> issues with that. Um, but the schools definitely profit from them, and particularly male sports are much more profitable than women's right. pretty consistently. So if we look at head coaches of college teams, Mm -hmm. um, we can see that there are like huge differences between the salaries of the coaches for men's sports versus women's. For example, if we look at the University of Kansas um, and specifically their basketball coaches, the women's coach, Bonnie Hendrickson, made $500,000 last season, while the men's coach made $5 million before bonuses. And, like, how Um, good is Kansas anyway? Like, they didn't win. Their men's team is pretty good. They're consistent tournament contenders, but they didn't win. Right. (laughs) Um, But University of Kansas has the worst head coach salary gap across the board. So it's between men's and women's sports. Mm -hmm. The average salary gap is $200,000 between the coaches for the men's and the coaches for the women's. Right. So that's just like an average. And the extreme is basketball where it's $4.5 million different. Millions Um, of dollars. $4.5 million. But it's interesting to look at because this really isn't inherently sexist. Like as we talked about, it goes back to the question of the chicken or the egg and popularity and profitability. So the Equal Pay Act of 1963 stipulates that the salaries of men and women must be equally tied to the profit that their respective programs bring in. So (laughs) with less viewership and profit in the women's game, we're obviously going to see a really big gap in the salaries. Yeah. And looking at a 2011 report, there's not a single school where the women's basketball team turns a profit. So there's no way that any women's team is going to, their coach's salary is going to be anywhere near a men's. Which actually, um, as we talked about when we were during March Madness, um, Gino Ariyama mm-hmm. is the head coach of UConn's bas- women's basketball team who has won nine national championships <laughs> with him as the head coach. So naturally you think like, nine national championships. This guy is a legend and he must be at the very cusp of the salary structure for women's sports. Um, And he is, he's at the high end for basketball, women's basketball coaches, but he makes $2 million per season. Which is like a mid-level men's basketball coach. Right. If you compare his salary to that of Coach K, who has, he's had a similar level of success with the Duke men's basketball team, 
he's making coach K is making $10 million per season. Yeah. So (laughs) while it's not a matter of the gender of the head coach, it's more of a discrepancy in the profitability of the male sport versus the female sport. And that is resulting in the salary gaps that we're seeing. Yeah. So I think that we keep talking about like popularity versus profitability and I think that it's sort of easy enough to just stop at what you just said. Like, well, you know, their salaries are related to their profitability. The league's not profitable, so there's not as much money. Boom. Women's sports aren't popular <coughs> enough to to carry themselves. But I think right. that, that ignores that there is a lot of planning and production and promotion that goes into men's sports to a level that doesn't exist for women's sports and that this is really where the media comes in as a major player of um, how much visibility these sports have. So definitely, I think that's the chicken or the egg thing. Like if you promoted these sports more, if you invested time and money into advertising and different ways of drawing a crowd, would you see the profitability increase? Like, or are people just not going to ever get behind women's sports in the same way? Right. So there was this really great article in The Atlantic, which was talking about um, the relationship between sports and feminism and the media. And one of the people that they talked to for this article is a woman named Cheryl uh, Cookie? Cookie? (laughs) (laughs) C-O-O-K-I. Cookie? Um, Cookie. Cookie. And (laughs) Miss Cookie is the co-author of a study on the media's coverage of women's sports And she made a point, she said, there's still this cultural investment in the idea that sport is this space wherein talent and hard work is what matters, and things like race, gender, and sexual orientation don't. But she points out that a lot of our perceptions about how interesting women's sports are come from the media itself, and that, of course, men's sports seem more exciting when they have higher production values, higher quality coverage, and also higher quality commentary, Whereas with women's sports, she says, you know, you have fewer camera angles, fewer cuts, fewer instant replays. And so then, yeah, like all of this creates a product that is less fun to watch. Um, But what I thought was most interesting about this article was actually that it discussed the role of the feminist movement in the 70s and how our perceptions today work out. Um, Mm. Because feminism in the 70s was a time when issues like abortion, equal pay, um, right to work, things like that were really at the top of the agenda. And this article contends that feminism in the 70s overlooked sort of purposely women's sports because they were seen as frivolous. Yeah. I mean, it's just so frustrating. Like I'm just listening to us talk and like women's sports are side activities. Women's sports are frivolous. Like these are things that just would never be said about the men's game. And like sports are so important to our culture. They're so huge and all encompassing and nobody, nobody's ever upset or judgmental about how into sports men get. And so it's like, I just want to be so hyped on women's sports and have that be a legitimate use of my time and not like a side activity or frivolous. Right. And this article was basically saying like the gender inequities in sports are just as vast as those for women in corporate offices or movie sets or Fortune 500 companies 
or what have you, but for some reason, sports just fails to incite this same level of outrage that we often have when there's blatant inequality in other sectors. You know, sports are a construction of our society and our culture, and so thereby it's a reflection of it. When you and I were discussing making this podcast, that that's something that maybe we hadn't articulated clearly, but was certainly an impulse behind this, is that you know, by examining sports, you can really turn the lens back onto the larger society, societal issues that they speak to. Totally. Like when you were talking about the different feminist issues in the 70s, like everything that's happening in sports is mirroring what's happening in the rest of our culture. It's right. like as things progress, I would say like we're making big leaps forward in a lot of other issues. And we've seen some big leaps forward in you know, gender inequities in sports lately, but I think it's naive to not see the parallels. Definitely. I agree. Sports is life. (laughs) (laughs) For us, at least. (laughs) Okay. So let's take a little break now and we'll come back on a little bit of a lighter note with some micro sports. Yay. Welcome back. We are now going to uh, talk about the return of micro sports. I'm really excited. Micro sports. Micro sports. <laughs> because, Bryn, you are in a totally new place, totally new people. And so I am just so curious what you've been doing to stay active, stay fit, stay healthy, have fun. So, what's going on in Malawi? It's been interesting in Malawi. (laughs) So the sun sets here at 5.30 p.m. Uh And you can't really go out after dark. So in order to run, I've had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. So needless to say, that hasn't happened as much as I would have (laughs) hoped. (laughs) Um, But thankfully, I have a whole hard drive full of workout videos. So (laughs) Jillian Michaels' killer buns and thighs has been a godsend for Uh. me. I've been doing some T25, which is from the makers of Insanity. And let's see. Oh, and this week I joined a soccer team. So that should be good. Yeah, is it like so, expats or is it are you playing with locals or what's the what's the deal? It seems like expats. Um on Wednesday nights there's an indoor league, so it's in a gym on a basketball court. Mm-hmm. Um and that is all expats. But then I'm also playing in a Saturday league that my team is all expats, but I think some of the other teams are mixed. So, so cool. it'll be It'll be fun. There's not really grass to play on. So it's either in the gym or in a sand uh, field, which is going to be a real workout. (laughs) That will be so good for you. You're going to come back with like the most ridiculous legs. I know. Sand (laughs) running all day, every day. Also, Lake Malawi is huge. It's like Lake Michigan in the U.S. (laughs) Both very Um, literal names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. No imagination. Um, But there's a triathlon uh, on Lake Malawi in a couple weeks. So I think I'm going to do it. It's like a baby triathlon. I think the running part is like 2.5 miles. (laughs) The swim is like less than a mile. It's all very manageable. It should be fun. What have you been up to since we last talked? 
Well, um, speaking of biking, I bought a bike off of our former roommate slash correspondent on the ground, Sasha. Nice. (laughs) So um, that's actually been really helpful in getting to my soccer games. It's a lot easier. Um, But otherwise, been playing a lot of softball this summer. I'm actually about to head out after we wrap up recording uh, to the softball tournament Um, We are the number one seed, so hopefully we'll do well and make it to the next round. That's exciting. I've been getting back into my kickboxing. Sweet. uh, I have soccer playoffs tomorrow, so lots of playoffs happening right now. It's playoff season. Just like March. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it's my own little March madness. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Cool. All right. Well, I think that about does it. Um, yeah. Bryn, you want to remind them, since it's been a little while, where they can find us? <laughs> sure. Until next time, uh, you can find us on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. We're on Twitter, and we've kind of let our Instagram lapse, but we're on Twitter and Instagram at NYBF Sports. And you can email us at nybfsports at gmail.com. And don't forget uh, that we have started up a MailChimp account, so please sign up. You can find the sign-up links on Facebook and Twitter, and um, we will be sending out our new episodes via MailChimp as well, um, along with maybe some other goodies along the way. Yep. So until then, good game, Maeve. Good game, friend. So glad we're back. (laughs) Me too. (laughs)